everyone. My name is Drew Ray and this is episode 53 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Welcome to any new listeners and welcome back to regular listeners who may have been wondering where the show's been this last few weeks. More on that later. Let's get straight to the heart of this episode. Interlocks are used in a variety of applications where you want to stop two incompatible things being true at the same time. It can sometimes, for example, be a problem if two people are editing the same document at the same time. So when a second person, say, tries to open a Microsoft Word file, they receive a message that someone else already has the document open. That's an interlock. Most dishwashers can't be running while the door is open. That's an interlock. An automatic car won't start unless the gear selector is in park. That's an interlock. The strongest possible interlocks are ones where it breaks a physical law of the universe to have both states true at once. That can be harder than it sounds. You might think, for example, that it's impossible for a door to be open and closed at the same time. So have many designers, only to realise that a door can be closed enough to seem closed, but open enough to let things through. Usually we settle instead for a reliable mechanical linkage. It's dangerous for a firearm to shoot unless the firing chamber is completely sealed. To prevent this, the mechanism is shaped so that either the trigger can't be pulled or the firing pin can't move, unless the chamber is properly configured. That's a mechanical linkage interlock. Where we can't create a mechanical link, we create a power link instead. Home appliances usually have a switch to detect when they're open, where opening the switch cuts the power. These aren't perfect, because you can often spoof the switch if you really want to. You open the door and jam a coin or piece of plastic to close the switch and keep the thing running. One step less dependable again is to have a sensor or micro-switch. These don't directly cut the power. Instead, they send a signal to a logic circuit or a microprocessor, which enforces the separation of states. Sensors and micro-switches are typically less reliable than power switches, and there's the added complication of getting the logic or the software right. There are advantages to doing things this way, though. For one thing, it lets you have a much more nuanced and complicated interlocking. Instead of the washing machine stopping every time you open the door, it can stop only during the fast spin cycles. Instead of the traffic lights letting one set of traffic through at once, they can operate in complicated but still safe patterns. One of the earliest uses of complicated interlocks for safety was on the railways. Whilst boiler explosions were a big early problem, and pedestrians and track workers make up most of the modern fatalities, the big ongoing social concern has been putting two trains in the same place at the same time. Not a good idea. Railways started out with the weakest interlocking available. Human-operated messages. This was even weaker than the micro-switch protecting a food processor, because there wasn't any way to detect where the trains were. Memory of the trains needed to be held within systems where humans passed messages between one another. Now, a podcast is probably not the best place to explain in detail how the various systems worked. Some of them involved physical tokens, such as wooden staffs held by the train drivers. These have hung around for a surprisingly long time. Token, staff, and staff and ticket systems are still in use in various places around the world, 
and electronic versions of them are used not just on railways, but to direct traffic on computer networks. As railways got busier though, the interlocking was moved away from the train drivers and into a network of signals. Human signalers were still needed to hold and communicate the knowledge about where the trains were though. They developed elaborate protocols to communicate with each other, and various ways of reminding themselves where the trains were. Over time, various parts of their job were then automated. Eyeball observation of trains was replaced by track circuits and other means of electronic train detection. Signals became mechanically interlocked and then electronically linked to the train to detection. Communication between signalers became communication between the electronic interlocks. Train control centres were introduced and began maintaining a picture of the entire network and allowing central controllers to direct traffic and to add protection for work crews and maintenance vehicles. For a long time, the weak link in the system was still between the signals and the trains. The whole scheme relied on the driver seeing the signal and stopping the train. An obvious solution was automatic communication between the signals and the brakes on the train. Early ways of doing this involved physical switches on the train activated by spring-loaded trip arms known as train stops. These evolved into automatic train protection, which uses wireless communication of signal states to the trains, and automatic train control, which even anticipates signals coming up ahead of the train to control the train speed, rather than just by applying the brakes. Now we get to the centre of the issue. The state of the art in train safety has always been way ahead of the implementation of the technology on the tracks and rolling stock. There has never been a single time in the history of railway when we haven't had good, reliable technology to make trains safer than they currently are. You can pick up any rail accident report and chances are it mentions a piece of technology available right on the market at the time that it claims could have prevented the accident. Let's try this out. May 22nd, 1915. Almost exactly 100 years ago as I prepare this episode. World War I was blasting Europe apart, but in Scotland it was a Saturday on a bank holiday weekend coming into summer. At that time, between Gretna Junction and Carlisle, the train movement seldom matched the timetable. The 11.45 and the Midnight Express coming up from London were often running late. A local shuttle, the 6.10 Parley, was in theory supposed to wait for them to go past Gretna and then trudge along behind, but in practice it couldn't be delayed that long when the trains were late, so often it went on ahead and let them go past at a little siding called Quinton's Hill. Quintin Sill was in the middle of nowhere and had two signalmen. One of them looked after the sidings during the night, the other looked after them during the day. Changeover was supposed to happen at exactly 6am. In fact, if the trains from London were running late, the day signalmen would ride up on the 610 parley and they would change over a few minutes late. One of the books on my shelf, Historical Railway Disasters, calls this a most reprehensible practice, and a highly reprehensible breach of discipline. Wikipedia even calls it poor working practices and malpractice. 
I think most people familiar with work in remote locations would rather consider it to be a sensible adaptation to the conditions. There was no real problem or anything unsafe with the arrangement. The only difficulty was they were so afraid of being caught handing over at 6.20 instead of 6am precisely, that they fiddled with the logbook to make sure the entries between 6 and 6.20 were in the correct handwriting. At Quinton's Hill, there were four pieces of track. There was a downline from Gretna to Carlisle, an upline from Carlisle to Gretna, and deciding for each of them. If a slow train needed to let a fast train pass, it was switched onto the appropriate siding. If the siding was already full, then the slow train was switched onto the other main line. When the day signalman arrived on the 610 Parley, he found both sidings were already occupied by goods trains, so the 610 Parley was switched onto the upline to get the London trains go past. This was a little unusual, but it was considered the appropriate thing to do in this situation. According to the rules, the signaller should have sent a blocking back message to the next box along, just to let them know that the upline was occupied. But this message was never sent. One of the reasons is that trains were moving about during the handover between the two signallers. This would have been a problem regardless of when the handover occurred. According to the rules, although not according to normal practice, the signaller should also have slipped a metal collar over the appropriate upline signals, just as a reminder that the train was there. So this lonely little signal box in the middle of the Scottish countryside had the brakesmen from the two goods trains and the off-duty signalmen reading the paper and sharing news of the war. The on-duty signalman was updating the logbook and probably paying some attention to the unusual opportunity to talk. At 6.42, a special troop train carrying a battalion of the Royal Scots came along the upline and was accepted by the day signaller. It flew downhill at full speed with clear signals and slammed into the 610 Parley sitting on the line. Over 200 yards of wooden carriages were compressed into 70 yards of shattered timber. The signalmen threw all the signals immediately to danger, but they were unable to stop the express coming up from London, which ploughed through the wreckage. Wooden debris, gas lighting, overturned locomotives with hot coals. No prizes for guessing what happened next. Officially, there were 227 fatalities, and a further 246 injuries. The two signallers were tried and convicted for manslaughter. How, asked the prosecutor, could the accident be consistent with them honestly and faithfully doing their job? It was inconceivable that they could have let this happen. The investigation mentioned that track circuiting was capable of preventing this sort of accident if it had been installed, and it was gradually being installed around the country. It was perfectly understandable, though, that it wasn't in place at Quintinsill, which would have been one of the last places to get it, because the signallers were perfectly capable of keeping the area safe, if only they did their jobs diligently. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't just the two signallers who were prosecuted. The fireman from the 610 Parley was also convicted for breaking a regulation called Rule 55. Rule 55 said that one of the staff from a waiting train needed to go into the signal box to formally remind the signaller that the train was there. 
Why was Rule 55 even needed? Because it was a common well-known occurrence for signallers to make the exact same mistake that the signallers made. In other words, the day signaller was locked up in jail because he made a mistake that was inconceivable, despite the fact that the mistake was so common there was an official rule to try to remedy it. The night signaller was locked up in jail because he was willing to work an extra 20 minutes to make the handover easier for his mate. The official report implies that this was because the men were lazy and didn't want to get up early. That's judgmental nonsense. One man arriving late meant that another man worked longer. They took turn and turn about so they didn't have to walk miles to work in the darkness. That's not laziness, that's common sense. Only the rules were so inflexible that they and probably their boss and possibly their boss's boss had had to hide what they were doing. It had to be such a secret that they were breaking this rule. It's not even really clear what this had to do with the accident, except that it might have contributed to the day signaller being distracted. Unlike, say, the regular problem of two late trains requiring a difficult switching operation that the railway had done nothing to sort out. Or the fact that they are in the middle of a world war, which the investigation was happy to accept as an excuse for the poor quality rolling stock with outdated gas lighting. In practice, it works like this. We ask a bunch of humans, the drivers and signallers, to perform vigilance tasks. They're told to watch things, to remember things, and to never ever get distracted, tired, or lose track of where things are up to. This is hard to do, some would say impossible, but they'll do their best to adapt. They'll invent little tricks to keep themselves alert, or to remind them of their current state. They'll invent informal ways of communicating with themselves and with others, and of trading off tasks to keep the work fl sm smoothly flowing and interesting. Often, things will go a little wrong. It might be something that can be labelled as a mistake, or it might be two people making local sense that's incompatible between each other with their view of the system. In these small circumstances, there's no bad outcome, but margins have been tighter than we might have liked. Eventually, though, or maybe the first time, one of these stretches of margins leads to an accident. There's nothing special about the particular people who are nearby when the accident happens. If you shuffled the people around, or even just re-ran the universe with a slightly different random number seed, different people would have been involved. And there's always technology that's much better at these sorts of vigilance tasks. But that isn't a magic solution. We could always be improving the railways, and there are always accidents that could be stopped using always better technology. There's a balance between what's possible and what's practicable. And there are higher level policy decisions about which modes of transport we're going to invest public money in. Work installing new equipment can be dangerous too. Remember Clapham Junction caused by a loose wire during resignalling work. Remember the hundreds of pedestrian workers who are struck by rail vehicles. Ultimately, every single rail accident will involve humans being humans and technology that could have been there but wasn't. Spending time, effort and attention blaming the humans or thinking that government is evil for not having implemented the latest technological fix everywhere yet may be politically satisfying, 
but it isn't in any sense an explanation. I can tell you in advance, the next ten rail accidents all will involve humans that could have been more vigilant and technology that could have been there. What have you learned afterwards that I didn't tell you beforehand? I'm on the fence whether anything at all could have been learnt from investigating the Quentin's Hill accident. There were ongoing issues, such as the design of signal boxes so that the signallers didn't have time to go to the window to check before accepting signal requests. Maybe something could have been done about that. But much less than could have been learnt by the investigator going to the signal box five weeks before the accident and just finding out what work was like for the signallers. The accident itself didn't provide any new information. What is certain is that nothing was learnt from the investigation. Talking about what should have been, or what could have been, is not an explanation. It's simply applying labels and categories using predetermined notions of how things should have been done. We haven't even learned the lessons from the problems with investigations. I'm not going to talk at all about the recent Amtrak crash on this podcast. For one thing, I think quick response to accidents is always way too clouded by the immediacy of events. For another, I think Quentin's Hill, a hundred years ago, says everything that needs to be said. As you might guess, I've been pretty busy since we last spoke. At the end of April, we had our intensive week for the Critical Perspectives on Safety course. I had an absolute blast, and most of the students, I think, got a lot out of it too. We had a great group of students there. As my friend and student Luca put it, the course we run is like studying the rich world of theology and comparative religion. Going to a standard course on safety is more like attending mass. Forgive me, Father, for I have normalised my deviance. For penance I will recite the hierarchy of controls and eat a slice of Swiss cheese. Entry into our graduate certificate and masters is open for 2016 and we'll be running some shorter courses later in the year. If you're in Australia, I'd highly recommend you check these out, and we've got international students who are flying in just for the intensive weeks and doing the rest online, so that's possible too. I've also finally published a proper paper based on the universal tales of disaster that we talked about in episode 11 and episode 38. It's mainly about the use of accident stories in teaching about safety. If you're interested, I can send you a copy, just drop me a line at feedback at disastercast.co.uk, which is also where to write with questions, comments, or ideas for the show. Last week I was at the Australian Safety Critical Systems Conference. Lots of fun, including some great keynote addresses from Johan Bergstrom, Chris Johnson, Paul Bales, and John Green. I'll be down in Ballarat speaking at the Viosh Research Symposium on 10th 11th July and in Melbourne for the SIA National Convention on 16th, 17th September. Thank you to Andy, Arclight, Guy and Jerry for your recent comments and suggestions. Also thanks to the Patreon subscribers for your continued financial support, particularly premium subscribers Paul, Daniel, Hunter and Patrick. Till next time, keep safe.